0: But first, we certainly have been hearing a lot about vaccines and about what's happening in the United Kingdom. British Health Secretary Matt Hancock says batch testing was completed on 800,000 doses. The UK previously purchased 40 million doses. That's enough to vaccinate 20 million people because the vaccine requires two shots 21 days apart. Officials know there are going to be many questions about the vaccine and its safety. Never before has a vaccine been created and approved so quickly. Crystal Gamanson, Global News, London. And uh, Crystal Singh reporting there, Pfizer saying that vaccine should be arriving in the United Kingdom within the next 24 to 48 hours. Well, what does that mean when we look at the bigger picture of other countries, including Canada? Let's bring in Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason is also a microbiologist. So great to have you back on the program.
1: Oh, Great to be joining you. Uh,
0: what are your thoughts? Well, first, before we get into how it's being rolled out and what's happening with this, Crystal Gomansing was talking about something called batch testing. What does that mean when we're talking about vaccines?
1: Well, when you have any kind of product that is going to be coming out, whether it be medical or even food, you want to be testing to make sure that particular lot numbers or batches um, are Uh, essentially meeting all the requirements. And so when you're talking about 800,000 meeting the batch testing, that means that every single one of those um, has had had random testing that's been done to make sure that it has what it's supposed to have in it, what it says on the label, and that it's also effective in what it's supposed to do. And you can do that in the laboratory. So all of these particular tests are done in advance of releasing any kind of product to the market.
0: And what are your thoughts then? And we heard in that report, we've heard in many reports that this is obviously happening much faster than we have seen it happen in the past. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. uh, about where we are at with the vaccine approval and development?
1: Well, we only heard about the, uh, the really good news just a couple of weeks ago. And if you remember back then, it was only, for the Pfizer example, was only 94 cases of COVID-19. And then out of that, uh, you know, 10% had had the vaccine and the other 90% had had uh, the, um, the placebo. So that's where we were. Now, what's been going on is that as sort of time has progressed, the information that's been coming into Pfizer is essentially going straight to uh, the, the UK Medicines regulatory group. And so as a result of that, there's sort of a middleman time that's been reduced so that this approval can happen now as opposed to January or February. But what that also means is that when it comes to a rollout, all the work that's been done to this point now has to be sped up so that we can be absolutely sure that people are going to get that vaccine as soon as possible.
0: And what do you think that does mean for the rollout in Canada? And I know it's been politicized a fair bit with the federal government's response and where Canada actually is on the wait list with the the various vaccines that are being developed. But how do you see something like this rolling out as far as priorities and what groups would then qualify or want to be vaccinated first?
1: yeah. so when it comes to the rollout itself, we essentially are going to be seeing um, the the mass vaccination campaign concept. So we're going to have operational centers and that's going to be run by the armed forces uh, you've probably heard of operation laser back in uh, april and may because they were the ones who were going into the long-term care facilities well they're going to be moving on now to being able to help with the vaccine rollout um, so there'll be a national operations center in ottawa and then you'll have uh, regional operational centers and then from there um, the, the the armed forces will be able to get the vaccine out to whatever communities are are, are essentially needing it now in terms of who gets it first that has been uh, basically under discussion for a very long period of time, um, numerous months, but also numerous years, because we've always talked about this when it comes to pandemic vaccines, even uh, the, the H1N1 from 2009. And so we already know that what's going to happen is that the most elderly individuals and those who are in those long-term care facilities, including the people who are caring for them, uh, frontline health care workers, they're probably going to be the first people to get a vaccine. And then after that, it's going to come down based on a combination of age and also uh, what we call comorbidities or um, pre existing conditions that could potentially lead to uh, an extreme or severe uh, infection and, and possibly a risk of death. As that goes down, as we start moving forward, and I'm figuring that we're looking at maybe a late January, early February start here in Canada for a rollout, we're looking at uh, the spring where we have a much larger group of people being vaccinated. And then it'll be the summer where everyone will have the opportunity to be vaccinated. So just as I've been saying for the last few months, by the time we get to September of next year, not only will the pandemic be over, but We'll also be having the vaccine being available the same way that we have the flu vaccine, whether we need it every year or not, still needs to be found out.
0: And do you think that's part of the, the issue too? Or when we talk about that, and I'm glad you mentioned H1N1, because I think if we look back, we think back to 2009, uh, it, yes, it was a pandemic, but certainly not to the same scale as what we're seeing now, nor was there that push for every single person to get vaccinated. Is, is that where there's more of an issue or, or more of a challenge, I guess, to make sure people understand how important this is?
1: Yeah, well, the big problem between the flu and this particular coronavirus is actually what it attacks. You see, when the flu attacks you, it attacks a sugar that happens to be on top of an immune molecule, and it kind of knocks you down. But then the immune system says, nah, I've had enough of this, comes back and and helps you unless you're very, very old or um, very, very young. Now, when it comes to the coronavirus, what's happening is that it's actually attacking a a molecule that is responsible for helping you prevent inflammation in your body. (laughs) And so once that takes over, you are in deep trouble. So the fact is that with influenza, A lot of people could get away with, you know, not necessarily going for the vaccine. So there was less of a struggle trying to get as many doses to people as possible, although there were definitely more than enough uh, made. When it comes to the coronavirus vaccine, because of the risk that we know that happens inside of the body, we want to make sure everybody is going to be protected. So that's one of the reasons why there is this huge push to have everybody that can possibly get this vaccine actually get it.
0: We are talking with Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also a microbiologist, getting a bit of a a check on where things are at with COVID-19, with the numbers and the rolling out of the vaccines around the world. Phone lines are open as well if you have a question for Jason. Uh, Let's start with the phones. And Fernando is on the line. Good afternoon.
2: Hi. Uh, Question. If someone has an underlying condition, uh, side effects, that would be that
1: might come about because of the uh, COVID vaccine. All right, do, uh, do, oh, from the vaccine? Um, probably not. And, and the reason is that you're not getting the virus itself. You're going to be getting, in the particular case of the Pfizer, you're going to be getting a piece of genetic material that's going to go into your cells and basically, ask yourselves to make a particular protein that kind of looks like the SARS CoV 2 virus, which causes COVID 19. And then your immune system is going to get used to looking at that. And that's how you're training so that you're going to have uh, the ability to fight off. There's not going to be any type of uh, loss of the ACE2 protein, which is what essentially you lose when you have the infection. So don't worry too much about that if you have any of these pre-existing conditions. We keep hearing about
0: uh, because that is one of the the questions that I had seen asked as well, or one of I think it was a story out of the states on CBS saying that uh, in in one of the the vaccines you could get some negative side effects, or you could get you could get to feeling not great after it, and there was some concern that that was the where you still needed the second dose and they wanted to make sure that people would still come back and get the second dose.
1: Yeah, so what's happening is that when it comes to any of these particular types of vaccines, Um, you still are going to have some kind of effect. I mean, anyone who ever has the flu vaccine or the measles vaccine or whatever knows that you're going to have a bit of soreness in the arm and you're not going to feel all that great. Uh, A lot of people who got the flu vaccine this year didn't feel so great afterwards either because it was new to them. They've never seen it before. And so when that happens, the first time you get a vaccine that your body's not used to, it's going to be a little bit more of a reaction the real question is, are you going to start having the same type of inflammatory uh, syndrome that you get when you have the virus? The answer to that is no.
0: All right. Uh, let's see if we have uh, another question on the line. We do. Let's go to Ed. Good afternoon.
1: Hi. It's got a two-part question. I'm on schedule to, to take Intivio. They won't let me take the flu shot until um, they consider me better, like you know back to normal. Um, is the incubation period only two weeks and... Uh, the second question with Intivio what complications would arise with this new
0: uh, COVID vaccine? All right. I'm not sure if that's in uh, Jason's wheelhouse. Jason, yeah, well- are you able to answer that?
1: Yeah, well, Intuvio is actually a monoclonal antibody. And what that's supposed to do is it's supposed to help you to reduce the effect of your immune system when it's doing something uh, against you, like a Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Now, the fact is, is that when you do that, you're also shutting down the ability to form the memory that you need when you have a vaccine. That's one of the reasons why they don't want you getting the influenza vaccine the likelihood is that you also will probably be uh, asked not to have the COVID vaccine as a result of that. There are going to be people who simply do not have the ability to develop that immune response. And when you're taking a medication that's designed to prevent an immune response, um, it, it could become problematic. This is something you definitely need to be having as a conversation with your healthcare provider to find out if you can actually you know, stop one so that you can take another. It, it's kind of like people who are taking um, uh, uh, blood thinners like Warfarin and that when they want to go to the dentist. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to.
0: All right. Uh, let's see who else is on the line. We have Joanne. Joanne, good afternoon. Yeah, hello. Uh, I think I have a similar question <laughs> by the sounds of it. I, I wasn't hearing
3: very well. Uh, I have several autoimmune diseases. Uh, Crohn's being one of them, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, etc. I am currently not on an immune suppressor. I'm not on anything at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it okay for me uh, for the vaccine?
1: If you don't have anything that is suppressing your immune system, then there should be no problem to uh, have the vaccine. Again, this is one of those things where because, you know, even if even if I was a medical doctor, which I'm not, I wouldn't know your case specifically. So this is one thing where you really should be talking with your healthcare provider. If you have a gastroenterologist, um, they do know what is going to be best for you. And so that's better to have a conversation with them. But yes, it, it probably would be OK for you to take the vaccine based on what I just the very small amount that I've heard right now.
0: All right. Thanks for those calls. And Jason, we just have a couple of minutes left. Somebody who, again, with your background of dealing with SARS, of dealing with H1N1, what is your confidence level right now with where we are with this pandemic and what the future and what the next few months might hold?
1: Yeah. So um, a lot of you might remember that a week ago, I actually said we were at the halfway point of the pandemic (laughs) timeline. And a lot of you started screaming and going, oh, my God, Jason, what's wrong with you? Uh, That changed surprisingly this morning. I don't know why. Uh, But the the reality is that we're going to see the vaccine happening in some other countries. And while a lot of people, including opposition in government, is going to essentially say that this is a bad thing, from my perspective, I think it's an excellent thing. Because remember, when the H1N1 vaccine came out during the pandemic, we still only had about 30 to 40% of the people actually go and get it because there was that hesitancy. Uh, we still see hesitancy. But if we can show that with the UK and maybe even with America in that month that it takes us to be able to start doing the rollout here, we actually see that It was safe. People are getting, you know, uh, protected. There's uh, like the cases are leveling off. We're not seeing those and the high risk groups getting that. And and we're seeing deaths go down. Then it's going to give us the confidence to be able to do it for ourselves. So we're in the perfect position right now to be able to watch what's going on. And then when we have the opportunity to get in line, get that vaccine and put an end to this around, uh, as I've said before, around August to September of next year.
0: Well, some very interesting research is happening in BC. BC Children's Hospital leading a project to find out more how children and young adults in BC are being infected with COVID-19. Part of the federal government's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force is working alongside hospital researchers to find out how many people up to the age 24 have already been infected with the virus and how the infection rate in this age group changes over the next year. Joining me to talk more about this interesting research is dr Manish sadarangani lead research researcher and director at the hospital's vaccine evaluation center thank you so much for being with us good
3: afternoon jill and thanks for having me on the show
0: it seems like this is an age group that we haven't been looking at as much so we've been focused a lot on older people what are you expecting or hoping to find out by doing this research
3: yeah, no, that, that's right. I think, as you know, most people know when you look at the numbers, the number of children and young adults we're seeing infected with COVID-19 seems to be relatively low. Um, I think, as a pediatric infectious disease specialist, that's a bit of a surprise. Most infections we we see, you know, like influenza and other respiratory viruses are you know, usually transmitted primarily through children and we see very high rates of infection through children. So I guess you know, that led to the question of you know, why are we seeing such low rates and, and is, this, is this real or is this just an artifact because of the way the testing is done or because of the way children have symptoms? And so our real goal of this research is trying to get a, com- you know, a more complete picture of the, in- the burden of this infection in children. You know, we know from the numbers we're seeing, I would say, part of a pyramid we don't know how big that pyramid is. And, you know, are there cases that we're missing through the way the testing has been done? Are we seeing just a small tip of it or are we seeing most of it? And maybe there's a lot, but not, not a lot else underneath. And so I think we're hoping to explore some of those things and, and try and figure out some differences between those children who've been infected during the pandemic and those, those who've not.
0: And does it make it more challenging for you and the other researchers when dealing with a group that may have more asymptomatic infection or have immune systems that aren't fully formed and are different, say, from an adult?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's the, the sort of proportion of those who have asymptomatic infections that's the real challenge. I think, you know, if, we, if every infection has symptoms and everyone has got tested every time they had symptoms, then I think we could be very confident that the numbers that we're seeing in, in the testing patterns reflect pretty much what's happening in, in the province. You know, I think there's a couple of things. One, I don't think children will always get tested every single time they have symptoms. Um, and, and two, we don't know if, you know, if children are asymptomatic, clearly they don't have symptoms and wouldn't, wouldn't get tested either. So I think using this approach of you looking for antibodies um, will help to uncover some of those, some of those resu- results.
0: And when dealing with children, then I understand that the study is still looking for participants. Is it more difficult in that you need to get parental support or consent to do this? Or how do you go about even getting people to take part?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we have a lot of experience of doing research in children, not only within our research group, but, you know, at BC Children's Hospital. And so we're, we're very used to getting consent from parents for younger children, um, for adolescents and the young adult population. For this kind of study, they're able to consent for themselves. In terms of how we're reaching out to people, so we, you know, we have a, a database of people who have already told us they're interested in our research studies over the years. So we're reaching out to to everyone in the right age group who is in that database. You know, hopefully, as a result of. I'm um, talking to you today and, you know, other through other networks. We're hoping to reach out to the province as much as possible. You know, we're still definitely looking for people. So if people under 25 or know someone under 25 who might be interested in this study, then they can they can reach out to us. We're really looking to try and get as representative a population across the whole of B.C. as possible. Um, so we're really wanting to get people from, from far and wide. And I think the other, you know, challenge has been when we're looking across the whole of B.C., when we're trying to get, looking at blood samples, you know, historically, you would need to go to a lab, um, have, a, have a poke and have, you know, some, a blood sample taken, and, you know, a teaspoon or so of blood. But I think what's really revolutionized our ability to do this study, you know, not only for us, but also other researchers across Canada, is the ability to be able to send kits out to people at home and they can do a sort of finger prick sample, similar to what, say, people with, with diabetes will be doing. A few drops of blood on a filter paper card mailed back to us and that for us is sufficient to do um, to look to do the test.
0: It is pretty amazing that you're able to do that by uh, sending it right to somebody's house and getting it sent back.
3: Yeah, and I think I think it is and I think that a lot um, a lot has happened in terms of COVID research over the last few months. I think people have really stepped up to to the plate in terms of trying to figure out ways of of cracking this problem and I think there's been a huge effort, you know, across the whole of Canada and a lot of a lot of work done here in BC, both at BC Children's Hospital and at the BC Centre for Disease Control to be able to get these tests to work. And I think the only way we could do this sort of study in children and get the answers we want would be to, to use this technology. So I think I'm really thrilled at all the partners um, that we have and all the collaborations that we have to really try and drive this forward. And, and I think it you know, may open the doors for future research studies to be able to use this sort of approach.
0: And when you talk about the age group being uh, people under the age of 25, are you looking then at, say, the social interactions, or will this look at uh, what what we learned then about the infection rate and, and that of, say, children in grade one that may have a much different uh, uh, circle of friends, a uh, different cohort than, say, somebody who's in university and is doing distance learning?
3: Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And so I think you've really sort of hit the nail on the head. So while we're looking at everyone under 25, we're trying to have equal... Um, groups in different age groups, so we have sort of essentially we 've separated everyone into five year age bands and we want to you know equally have children under five as we do you know the young adults in the twenty to twenty four year age group and then you know as well as the the blood sample, we are also collecting a lot of information from these people through an electronic survey where we get information you know around some of their socio economic information demographics, you know what their household composition is like whether they over, over the course of the pandemic, whether they've been going to school, doing school from home, you know, for the young adults, going to college, university, going to work, working from home um, and getting an idea of what their social networks are like. Um, and we're hoping that then by comparing the people who are positive on the antibody test with those who are negative, we'll be able to really identify some of these patterns of um, where the what's driving the, the infection in this population.
0: And are you looking for people as well then who know they have been exposed to this virus or who have had it?
3: Yeah, so we're certainly not excluding those people. We're, we're trying really hard not to just target those people because we don't want to overestimate the number of infections that are happening um, by having a lot of people who, who either know they've had COVID before or are very suspicious they've had COVID. So we're trying to get a broad representation across the entire community, but certainly we're not excluding people who've had COVID before. And we're, we're collecting information from people on previous, any previous COVID testing they've had and the results of that.
0: All right. And just uh, again, if somebody is listening to this and wants to either learn more information or maybe uh, apply to become a participant, how do they do that?
3: Yeah, so there's information on our website. So probably the easiest way is if you go into your your favorite search engine and just type VEC spring study, and that should take you to our website. And there's some more information about the study there. Um, There's specific information of how we collect the samples and how that's done at home. And then there's also contact information for how you can let us know that you're interested in participating, and we'll reach out to you as soon as we can.
0: All right, Dr. Sadarangani. Ngani, thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating research. I can't wait to see what the results are and to learn more about it.
3: Yeah, me too. We're hoping to have some initial results at least in the next few weeks. So, yeah, I'm really excited too. Thanks.
0: Well, coming up this half hour, we are expecting to hear from Premier John Horgan. We will bring that to you live when it happens. First, though, we want to take a look at a new survey. It was done after the B.C. election, and it takes a look at what the priorities are for British Columbians when it comes to economic recovery. And joining me to talk about some of the results is Greg Davignon, the President and CEO of the Business Council of B.C. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Well, thanks for having me this afternoon, Jill. Uh,
0: You asked British Columbians Colombians, what the priorities are as far as recovery, economic recovery. Uh, Let's just go down some of the answers. What was the top priority of British Columbians?
2: Well, I think during the election, people were focused on uh, electing a government that they had confidence to keep us safe during the pandemic. But as you cited in your opening, once the election was done, people turned to their own particular personal finances, as well as that of the economy. And uh, people were worried about their own personal financial situation, about 6 in 10 British Columbians. But interestingly, and not surprisingly, those that are youngest in our society, under the age of 35, were the most worried. In fact, uh, 7 in 10 were concerned about their financial situation, but they were also worried about job loss and or income loss within their own household. The second and and probably the most important finding was that um, people made the connection that the ability to maintain the programs that were promised during the election and those that we've depended on during the COVID crisis Uh, they're worried about the sustainability of those without increasing taxes. And we know that B.C. has among the highest taxes for business investment and for personal income in uh, Canada. And the context of that is people are worried about that balance and what that future holds.
0: And you also asked people about uh, returning to a balanced budget, which seems like something that's probably quite far off at this point. But that also came back as very important.
2: Well, again, you know, I think British Columbians quite clearly see that we're spending unprecedented amounts of money as governments. And the federal government announced this week uh, over a half a trillion dollar deficit in the next two and a half years uh, to support uh, Canadians going forward. And to put that in context, uh, the Canadian government has spent more as a percentage of GDP than any other of the OECD countries, uh, 37 different nations. And we've had kind of middle of the road results in B.C., uh, the government has been prudent, but we're still going to have a 15 to a $20 billion deficit. And, you know, some of the worst deficits we've had even in the financial crisis were only a few billion dollars. So the context is people know that generationally they're going to have to be paying that back, and it saddles future generations with a huge tax burden. And it also impacts the services that we come to rely on, whether it's health care Uh, education and or the social services for those that are most vulnerable.
0: Did you look at issues as well or things that really came out in the starting weeks of the pandemic, whether it was restaurant patios and other places where clearly there was the possibility of cutting red tape and that could be done, we found out quite quickly. Uh, Does this survey look then to the future at more ways of doing that to jumpstart the economy or at least to streamline it?
2: It does and generally what we've found from the public both in this survey and previous surveys is that the the public sees two things. One is that when we're in the the uh, throes of the second wave of the pandemic we need to keep people safe and the healthcare system viable but they also know with the prospects of the vaccine coming in 2021 that we need to get on with building a plan and we don't have one federally but we need one in British Columbia to get people back to work and you know frankly, have uh, consumer facing and small businesses rise from the ashes of Covid uh, like a Phoenix and start to grow again. and it's really important to create government revenue. So in BC with a fifteen to twenty billion dollar deficit, most of that has come, Jill, because of a complete collapse in in uh, income from taxes and business activity. And so the faster we can get that back up and running and government to send signals, that the private sector can invest the vast majority of job losses and the, the huge economic hole is because of private sector constraints and a lack of demand early in the pandemic for uh, services and for goods those are starting to come back but we're still hundred thousand full-time jobs below where we were at the start of the pandemic and the more that businesses can be supported and often that's getting out of the way streamlining decision making municipalities Rather than taking six or eight years to get a project done, try to get that done in two years using digital technology. We're all, you know, um, seeing our doctors online, educating ourselves, buying online. So in that context, why wouldn't we be doing government online as well to speed things up and make decisions more quickly that get capital flowing that creates a job-rich recovery for British Columbians?
0: And I don't know if you asked people this, or did you get the sense that and we don't know what's going to happen really in the next few months, though, that BC maybe is better positioned for that economic comeback in that if we look at what's happening in Ontario, uh, those small, smaller businesses have been shut down in the the certain areas that are the red zones. So thankfully, we don't for the most part have that in BC right now.
2: Yeah, as we're uh, seeing every day from Adrian Dixon and Bonnie Henry that, um, you know, we still have a lot of risk in front of us in terms of managing the transmission. But BC deserves credit and Dr. Henry and the government deserves credit. We've kept the economy open for the large part through the pandemic. Um, but there's a lot of consumer-facing businesses, you know, that are operating at 30 or 40 or 50 percent. I just spoke to a business owner at lunch today that's operating at about 60 percent, and they've got not only their regular costs of rent and labor and and services, but they also have higher costs to keep people safe on uh, PPE and and other measures that they're taking. So, you know, one of the things that we heard is governments could stop. Any new policies or taxes or things that would add cost and complexity to doing business, but clearly put a plan in place to really take a look at what is a very diverse and opportunistic economy in British Columbia. We have amazing innovation in life sciences in agri-food and agri-tech in our transportation sector. The things we sell to the world, uh, forest products, minerals, LNG, natural gas, are half the GHG intensity of competing products around the world. So if we care about climate change, we should be getting more of those products into the global marketplace and also drive the innovation on clean technology that will reduce our emissions here, but also create opportunities on things like market offsets. So if you take an airline flight or buy gasoline, you can buy a carbon credit. Well, that comes from somebody sequestering carbon and First Nations are doing some of that work with industry right now in British Columbia and that could be expanded significantly.
0: And just before I let you go, I know we've been talking a lot on a provincial uh, level uh, because this was a a uh, post-election survey, Uh, but I would imagine too, I mean, the city of Vancouver today is taking a look at its budget, hundreds of people have signed up to talk to the budget, we've seen this movement of people saying now is not the time uh, for these pet projects, we want core services, we don't want huge increases in property taxes. Is this also a message to civic governments?
2: Well, I think specifically um, the city of Vancouver has been tone deaf. The world dramatically changed 11, year, 11 months ago. And there, there are people hurting, there are businesses hurting. My office tower, there's about 10% of people back at work. And that's going to have profound implications. And the last thing that anyone needs in their household or, in their personal life or in their business life is more cost and more pressure moving forward, and so, as the survey found provincially would apply uh, civically, just stop adding new things and creating uncertainty until the world starts to sort itself out, and if anything, create the conditions for people to get back to work safely to invest and to grow our economy responsibly going forward, and frankly. Uh, We haven't seen that from the city of Vancouver in the last little while, and I think they need to pay attention to what British Columbians are saying through this poll.
0: All right, uh, Greg D'Avignon, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, this could potentially be some good news for people living in strata corporations, in condos, townhouses, especially uh, some of the people, many people who have seen a big jump in their insurance costs. We've been talking about this on the program. In some cases, uh, corporations, strata corporations, that is, even unable to find insurance. So we've heard other stories about uh, renewing insurance policies and having to pay 100 300, 400% more than the previous policy. Well, B.C. has acted to eliminate something called best terms pricing. And joining me to talk about this and what it will mean is Frank Chong, the VP of Regulation with the B.C. Financial Services Authority. Thanks so much for being with us.
4: Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: Explain this a little bit, uh, because we talked about best terms pricing being one of the issues, not the only issue, but certainly one of the issues when it comes to that high and rising cost of insurance. So what is the change actually going to be here? Sure.
4: And maybe perhaps just a little bit of background here. As part of the review into the Strata insurance market, the B.C. Financial Services Authority Uh, Came out with some interim findings earlier this year and identified a particular pricing practice used by the industry, referred to as the best terms pricing. Amongst other factors, um, best terms pricing was really identified as a contributing, uh, a contribution to the inflation of strata insurance premiums. And so the work that we've been doing was working with the industry and they have agreed to end this particular practice for strata insurance. And we see this as a positive step for for British Columbians and maybe just for background also is that uh, as part of insuring strata properties, this often requires multiple insurers, given just the overall size of the properties, and with each particular insurer taking on a portion of that risk. And in putting together these types of policies, each insurer would be submitting its own bid, and then under best terms pricing, the method used is to uh, ultimately apply a final premium paid by strata owners on the highest of those bids versus the lowest of those bids.
0: Right. So if that's if we take that at face value, that should lead to lower premiums. But how can we assure people that that is actually what's going to happen when, again, this is just one part of it?
4: Sure. Yeah. And and I guess what I would probably say here is that, while you know, best terms pricing will help alleviate some of the pressures on premiums. It's not going to be the sole reason as to why we're seeing those increases. I mean, there are certain other Factors that are at play, uh, including claims costs that we identified as leading to some of the losses, uh, leading to the pressure uh, of this product's sustainability and supply. And so there's more than just best terms pricing, but certainly best terms pricing is is a factor with regards to the overall inflation.
0: Uh, was it any surprise then when your group started looking at this? And I know the sample was only taken from, from a one-month period, but saying that 94%, I think it was, of the people contacted said that, yes, this had been an issue.
4: Yeah, and you're right. And so we looked at a one-month sample, and we took a look at those particular properties that were um, being sort of renewed for that particular month. Uh, and we did discover that 94% of those properties were impacted. And from the data that we had collected, uh, it showed that overall premiums were about 27% higher than if there was a different uh, pricing method used. So uh, certainly there, there is some uh, bearing and impact over, uh, overall on, on, on overall premiums.
0: Uh, is there a concern that, uh, like you said, in, in many cases, strata corporations go to several different uh, insurance companies or they have a broker uh, that goes out and finds uh, several companies, so it's not like they're only insured with one company. Is there a concern that by getting rid of this practice, it, it could discourage from some companies from even being in the market, being in the business of offering strata insurance?
4: I mean, I think that there's already pressure in place in terms of supply and, and certainly I think uh, brokers and and their clients are working to uh, find the right capacity and supply uh, for their own strata property. I think going forward, and we're going to provide more information on this as we release our final report on strata insurance expected to be before the end of 2020, I think we'll be able to outline in that report some of the other factors that are also putting pressure on supply. And so this is really a longer term conversation, a very complex conversation, uh, but we'd like to, highlight some of this uh, as, as we release the final report expected uh, before the end of 2020.
0: And with best terms pricing, it's not as though all of the insurance companies were doing this. I know there were some uh, that weren't entertaining this practice, uh, that weren't involved. How will, going forward, how will we know uh, that this that the, the elimination takes place and that it's not being done?
4: Yeah, and so I, I do want to say that certainly um, there's a number of insurers that are significant players in the strata insurance market and we have been reaching out to them uh, having conversations with uh, each of them individually but also collectively as an industry and so I think that we've gotten some really good cooperation from the industry uh, in order to be able to move away from this and and they've been able to uh, you know uh, voluntarily uh, provide us assurance that they will be able to move away as of January 1st um, but we do, as a, as a financial services regulator, have the tools necessary to ensure that, um, that they are living up to the, those commitments. And so uh, I think that uh, we have uh, every confidence that they will be able to live up to those commitments.
0: And as you continue looking at this, and I know it was said that, that this was an issue, it's not the biggest issue as far as why we're seeing the skyrocketing prices or the cost of insurance. What else do you think needs to be addressed?
4: Yeah, and I think that's a really good one. And I think that uh, certainly as part of the overall conversations that we had been having with the industry, we had. Um, considerable amount of conversation and dialogue with the industry and other uh, stakeholders throughout the summer. And I think that part of this is to really understand some of the root causes, including the root causes around uh, rising claims. Uh, But we're going to be able to highlight a lot of those factors uh, moving forward as we release the final report, uh, which builds upon some of the interim findings that we released earlier this year. So look for the final report, which is expected uh, to be released uh, before the end of 2020.
0: All right. We will look for that uh, for sure. Frank Chong, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it.
4: All right. Thank you. Take care.